Hello and welcome to On Becoming a Brand, a Rethink Retail exclusive where we dive into the stories that helped shape the brands that we love and the people behind them. On today's episode, we hear from Jason McGowan, founder and CEO of Crumble Cookies, about how he and his cousin Sawyer Hemsley founded the country's fastest growing cookie company. And what's perhaps most interesting about the Crumble story is that the idea for the company didn't formulate in a kitchen, but instead was the result of two guys who were craving a late night treat. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because before cookies were ever on Jason's plate, he was a young Canadian climbing the ranks of the mid-2000s tech boom. And how he got there is where today's story begins. I spent most of my childhood years in Lethbridge, Alberta, and uh, kind of later in my life, in my 20s, I decided to move to the United States and kind of be here. For the first several months, I slept on my friend's floor, so I didn't really have much money. I was just coming here trying to, you know, have the American dream and figure everything out. I had an eighth grade education, slept on my friend's floor, and that's how I got started. So I'm always like, whenever you see my post or anything that I've done online, I'm always very excited about America and the opportunities that afforded me to be able to um, gain the skills and the knowledge and um, be able to become an entrepreneur to really start something that people have grown to to love. Wow. And did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Because it is a huge risk to take to, you know, relocate your entire life to a completely different country. And so, you know, what inspired you and, and really motivated you to take this leap? My dad was an entrepreneur growing up and he started a business that shuttled people to and back from the airport because the first, the major airport was in Calgary and it was a few hours away. So as a kid, I remember my dad took me out of school one day and let me ride with him uh, with a couple of his customers. I remember just watching the experience and watching my dad be an entrepreneur and he kind of always had that dream and that hope to become an entrepreneur. And as he was doing that, he was so excited to build this. Um, They had another national brand uh, that was a bus tour line that was just, nope, they didn't like it. They didn't want him to be able to do that. He needed to have different licensing to be able to tour people. And anyways, they went to court and all these other different things. And I just remember thinking about, you know, here's my dad as a small entrepreneur trying to make it, trying to come up with something. And there was all these technicalities on travel and licensing and all these things that happened in Canada that's kind of prevented him from really accomplishing kind of becoming that full entrepreneur. But it always, even though that, that, that business ended up not succeeding, it always just kind of gave me this entrepreneurial bug to just, you know, building something from nothing and creating a service that people will enjoy and value. And so kind of growing up, that was kind of the roots was watching that kind of entrepreneurship from my dad. Yeah, I can uh, I can imagine that, you know, being a kid who really looks up to their father and kind of just seeing them forge his own path. And as you said, really just trying to create something for himself, you know, how that would inspire you. But then it also sounds like there's just kind of that entrepreneurial spirit that 
runs in your family, like it's encoded in your DNA, um, which we will get to in a little bit. But I did want to hear about how you went from, you know, arriving in the United States, only knowing a handful of people, only having an eighth grade education to becoming kind of a, a, a leader in the tech industry. I was sleeping on a friend's floor and um, I was trying to figure out like, I need, I don't have an education and I need to figure out some kind of skills or tools to figure out ways to make money just to mm-hmm. live. So one day I wouldn't be sleeping on my friend's floor and provide kind of the necessities of life. And so um, one person uh, that there's, there's a, there's a company that was looking to do a website and this was early on. And um, they're like, you know, we're looking for someone to do a website. Do you know how to do a website? And I remember looking at them and I thought, well, how much, what's like, what's your budget for this? And at the time they were like, it's going to be about $800 mm-hmm. um, to do this website. And I'm like, $800. That's like, to me, that was just so much money. And I was just, I'll, I'll do it. I'll know how to build a website. I'll figure it out. And so that's kind of how it was born. I just literally started going on, on the internet, figuring out like, wait, how do you actually build a website? I started researching it. And it took me about a month to build something very, very, ba- it was very basic at the time, but that's kind of how I built a website. And um, so I built a website for this, this, this company, they paid me. And I just remember being so excited and seeing that. And um, in kind of earlier in my, my tech career, I had somebody reach out to me that seen some of the work I'd done on one of the websites. And they said, Hey, we were looking to build something on Facebook and build kind of some social media presence on Facebook and build these apps. At the time, Facebook was launching their new platform um, mm-hmm. and um, was letting uh, developers get onto the platform. And so I said, sure, I'll come and help do that. So anyways, I came to, to, to work on this, this program. Uh, ended up to be called We're Related. It grew over to 100 plus million users on Facebook. And that's when I just cut all my teeth, right? Figuring out mm-hmm. about social media and virality and when it comes to growth on social media and learning about technology. And so as I continued, I started to learn about technology and tra- taught myself all about, you know, user interface, design, user experience, um, all those different things to really make a product kind of cohesive and, and, and really kind of build a product from nothing. And so I got really, really passionate and excited about technology. I started developing all my skills in technology and built services that hit, you know, hundred plus million user users. And after that, you know, everyone was trying to create these social networks and do all these other different things. At the time I was working at a company called Ancestry and we were helping people discover their genealogy and, and all those kinds of things. And so I kind of got in this technology career and I had been in it for a while for, you know, over a decade. And I was just kind of getting tired of always just chasing the next technology of like, what was going to be the next social platform or was it going to be the next biggest technology? And I was like, maybe I should just try something different. I want to just try something like physical. Mm-hmm. And my cousin, his name is Sawyer Hemsley, who's amazing. He, he was also looking, he was going to college at the time. And so I was working ancestry, done some things in my career with technology. He was going to school and we both were just talking back and forth. We're like, yeah, we should do something someday. And at the time I had not, um, the DoorDash wasn't really prevalent. And so it's like, if you wanted to order some food, you could order pizza. And that was pretty much it at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, one day I want to deliver something that's with delivery and all these things. And so we were talking back and forth and I love technology. We both liked to kind of bake. Um, and there's some other concepts that were bubbling up in Utah. And we're like, we should do a cookie store. 
like, let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's go do a cookie store. And um, so we just got started. Like we just did it. And we went and found a location and it was uh, just several hundred dollars a month. It was under like a thousand bucks. And we got the location, started buying equipment. And then we realized we have no idea how to make cookies at all. <laughs> this is like, this is not like business, like one-on-one. You should not do this, right? You should go like get a lease on a building. You shouldn't um, do all these other different things and then figure out your product, right? You should figure out your product first, but we we're just so excited. And we were just like, yeah, we're going to do it. we got this, this inexpensive rent. The building was like set to be destroyed in like three or six months. Like, so we're like, if it fails, it's not the end of the world. We can just start this little cookie shop and it'll be some kind of fun learning. And we can kind of go off and do something else if we want to. Uh, and if it fails, it's not the end of the world. And so the problem that we realized though, is like, we got to learn how to bake cookies. <laughs> so we were like, should we just call up like a local provider and just have like someone just deliver cookies to us? And then we'll just like bake them mm-hmm. like, and that will be it. And then, so we start talking about all these things. We're like, no, we got to build. If we're going to build something, we only ever want to do the best. And so like, well, what's the best cookies? It's like homemade, fresh cookies. And so we started going and we started making cookies. And so Sawyer and I would get together and we would start like testing all these different things. And we'd go in his mom and his parents' oven and bake different things. And I'd be back at home at my house and I'd be baking different things. And so we'd kind of be going through and baking these things and nothing would work out. The cookies are just so embarrassing. If I sent you a picture, it's just like embarrassing. (laughs) They're disgusting, you know, and, and we're just like, oh no, what have we done and so we were just exhausted and we're like, well, we got to just figure it out. And so we hired some people like consultants to like help us learn how to just mix and bake, like just simple stuff. When we got the commercial equipment, we started, we had our recipe. We're like, we think we got somewhat of a decent recipe. We've tried it in our home ovens. We pour all the ingredients into the bowl and the bowl is sitting there. We're like super excited. And we turn on the bowl and the mixer starts mixing and the mixer paddle didn't even touch the top of the ingredients. And so it was mixing around air. And we're like, oh my gosh, so confused. We're like, wait, did we get the wrong mixer? Cause we bought a used mixer, right? Cause we were just starting out. We're like, oh, I gotta go find the right mixer. I totally bought the wrong <laughs> one. Well, I didn't realize it doesn't make small batches of dough. It only makes large batches of dough. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, we got a commercial oven. We got a commercial mixer. We got to just figure out how to do this all over again. So we had to like, you know, take our recipe and just like make it much, much bigger. And then we started making all these, this dough and then we throw them in the oven and it'd be like, Oh, that didn't work. Well, the whole batch didn't work. And you have to make these massive batches and we throw these batches of dough and we throw them into these black bags. And it was so heavy that it would feel like a body bag. And we'd be just hurling them in the garbage can. And I remember sometimes, cause we were doing it till like late at night, two in the morning, we'd be looking around being like, someone thinking we're throwing a dead body in the garbage? <laughs> here? This is like, hopefully no cops come by and they're like, what are these two kids doing at two in the morning, throwing a black sack that's really heavy over <laughs> the trash can, right? But we just kept working at it, working at it. And eventually we had told everyone we were launching and we were opening the store and a competitor actually, another cookie store had opened, just decided they're going to open a week earlier because they heard that we were going to launch. So like we had to launch. And so we just figured out and we ended up coming up with, we decided to do what we call the kind of taste test model. So mm-hmm. in my software world, if you want to know which website's better, you'd say, okay, which site would have more sales? Well, you'd launch two different versions and each customer would see different versions. 
and you'd A-B test it to figure out which one's the best. Mm -hmm. Well, in the world, I'm like, why can't we take that same concept and taste test our way to the best chocolate chip cookie? So when we were doing this and trying to figure out what was the best, we'd go to local gas stations and be like, which cookie do you like better? We changed up the chocolate chip. Well, me and Sarah got into this huge disagreement on whether it should be milk chocolate chip or semi-chocolate chip. And so we started getting into these arguments about, no, like, I'm, I'm like, it's a semi-sweet. Like I'm a semi-sweet guy <laughs> for sure. semi-sweet chocolate. It makes sense. So I was like, I'm a milk chocolate guy. So anyways, we did a poll on Twitter and we found out 70% of people prefer milk chocolate over semi-sweet chocolate. Interesting. So we're like milk chocolate is, that's how we, that's how we decide is data. Right. Uh-huh. So we do it kind of in our professional careers or my professional career. And so we started doing that and kind of iterating on this cookie and taste testing our way through ingredients and processes. And when we launched, we only had one cookie. We're like, that's all we can do. We, we were only <laughs> able to get one done. And we're like, we're going to just launch it. And so we launched the, we launched the business and we launched with one cookie and this guy comes in and I used to think he had suspenders on because I just, it was in my memory, but he had a plaid shirt on. I thought he had suspenders. I just found the picture the other day and realized he didn't have suspenders. But he just put a plaid shirt on, came in, bought a cookie, handed me money over the counter. And I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, people just spent money and bought a cookie. This is like, like it, it must have felt like a million dollars at the time to me. I just couldn't believe that someone was going to just hand us over money and, and, you know, buy our cookies from us. So that kind of happened. Uh, and then we were just, from then on, all of a sudden, just lines were out the door. People started hearing about it. Just lines started coming out the door. And they would come and we just put them four cookies in a box and they were large. And we would just give them the box of four warm chocolate chip cookies and they would leave. And that was it. And just word traveled around and it started getting really, really um, busy. And that's kind of how Crumble was born. Wow. That is an incredible story. It's a a little crazy when you hear it. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a fun story. I love it. It's such um, a stark contrast from you know, I would say the majority of bakeries, it said you guys kind of saw this like gap in the market and Crumble was really kind of bored out of wanting to solve this problem of that there were no real dessert delivery options in your area, as opposed to like having this like innate passion for, for baking or for cookies. And the approach, like it's a, it was, sounds like a very, you know, methodical process to figuring out uh, what the best cookie would be and what people would respond to best. So I think that's really cool. And I think it really, your background in tech definitely makes so much more sense now. And you can kind of see like um, how that was incorporated and how that was kind of, kind of served as like the backbone of of crumble in a way. And I I think that's really cool. So I wanted to know, so you told me a little bit about launch day and just how amazing that felt at first, you know, how did you guys kind of start getting the word out? Yeah. So I think this is another thing that was just, has really been something that's different from us too, as well out the gate. My partner Sawyer Hemsley is totally always been about social media it was in college. He understood it really, really well, had tons of followers. He's got a great eye for brand. And that's kind of what he went to school for. And so when we got started going out, I did a lot of a lot of the Facebook and, and Instagram and all that kind of marketing before. And Sawyer had this great eye for branding and design and these other things. And so instead of doing these radio and commercials and print ads and everything, we're like, let's just do all social. 
all social media. Mm-hmm. And five years ago, I mean, today that you can kind of look at and say, oh, hey, that makes kind of sense how big social media has become. But even just five years ago, that, w- that, that wasn't necessarily the recipe for success. And so we went all in on Instagram and Facebook and started just building content and started building teams and everything around just posting great content and engaging with the community. And so by doing that, we started getting followers from friends and family and other people started following us. And we started building up this Instagram following in the, in the town. And all of a sudden people started looking to that Instagram post to see what was going on and see what was new. And we really started to build community. And so using social media and that kind of as a platform um, really kind of helped jump us off to kind of how we, do we get the word out? How do we communicate and, and all that? And that, that is actually still how we communicate today. So what's interesting is even when it comes to like TikTok, we've gone all in and spent tons of resources and time and energy creating this content. And if you look at our following, we had more following on TikTok than Nike and Starbucks combined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's that constant commitment of saying, you know, as these other brands are spending a lot of time and energy and money and all kinds of different avenues. We just say, we're going to go all in and social and we're going to engage and reach out and that sort of thing. So even to this day, if you reach out on social media and DM us or try to communicate with us, we don't get everyone, but we sure do get almost everyone um, and, and talk to a lot of people. And that slowly compounds over years and years of communicating with our audience. And that continues to grow. Hello, Rethink Retail listeners. Get ready to mark your calendars because Future Stores is officially back in person in the beautiful city of Seattle, Washington. Returning to the Grand Sheraton Seattle from July 13th through 15th, Future Stores is the leading conference for senior retail executives in operations, design, digital, and technology. At Future Stores Seattle, you'll learn how leading retailers are integrating a hybrid approach into their in-store experience by balancing high-tech with high-touch. You'll walk away with actionable strategies for using store technology effectively, as well as educating your frontline associates and creating the next generation of store experience. Rethink Retail will be providing live coverage at the event and interviewing retail leaders at our media booth. I'll also be there moderating a live panel on how retailers can become the hybrid retail destination for today's connected consumer. Be sure to check out the link in the description of this podcast to learn more about the event and how you can sign up. We hope to see you there. over the last year or so, because I don't know, I'm on TikTok quite a bit and I, I definitely have noticed uh, that's where I first learned about you guys. Um, I think it was either last year or in 2020. Um, and, and you guys definitely do have a cult-like following of fans on social media, especially TikTok. And from from what I've seen, I think in large part, that's kind of due to your consistent rollout of you know new flavors. We see people going to their local crumble and getting the new flavors of the week and opening up the box in the car and just trying them all right then and there. Um, so I know you guys did the chocolate chip cookie, the milk chocolate chip cookie first. And then, um, you know, when, when did you guys decide to, to roll out more, more flavors? Was your intention always to, you know, roll out more, more flavors and have it be this kind of like 
interactive and engaging thing? And if not, if that wasn't the case, uh, when did you kind of first formulate that idea? No, that's a great question. So I think for, for us, when we got started, we were just focused on like trying to get even learn how to bake. So it was like the chocolate chip cookies, all you got. But slowly after that, we're like, we need to start introducing new cookies. And so we would do random things. Our first, what we call specialty cookie, which was a cookie other than the chocolate chip, um, was a midnight mint. And the reason why it was midnight mint is we used to be open until 2 a.m. And we're like, what if we just create a cookie and it's only available from midnight to 2 a.m. And we can just oh, get fun. tons of more people. And so we just created this cookie called Midnight Mint. It was a dark base with, you know, mint chips. And it was just, it was so, it was so good. Anyways, so that's kind of how we started doing it. We started saying, okay, well, let's start adding in new cookies and adding in new flavors. And so we started adding in, and again, we took that same approach of testing and trying out and that, that sort of thing. And so we started getting to the menu and then we opened up an Orem and then we opened up our first franchise model, which was in Bountiful. And in Bountiful, we sold all the specialty cookies. It was was I think it was something like nine or ten or eleven? I don't know. It was a lot of cookies to have the menu at the same time, and we started just noticing that we would frustrate some customers because they would come in hoping for a certain flavor, and that flavor would be gone. Mm. And so we're like, we can't keep up this. We can't keep adding new flavors, and we can't keep up with even these small amount of flavors because people who want those specific flavors they would be out, and you only have so much, you know storage capacity and, and baking and, and capacity in the ovens and, and all that sort of thing. So anyways, so what we decided to do is we said, well, let's just do rotation. Let's just start rotating um, these flavors. Instead of rotating like we're rotating, uh, let's just do a weekly drop. We'll just drop them every single week. We'll hype them up. We'll get people really excited about them. And then we'll just take them off the menu completely. And we'll just, you know, they may show up again. They may not. And if they do, it might be months away. Hmm. So we just got really, really excited. And so that was kind of a born out of a necessity. I think a lot of people are like, oh, look at this amazing model that they put together and da, 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 and they're geniuses. It's like, no, we just like, we were rolling with the punches. But I think what we did do well was we listened to our customers mm-hmm. and we listened to the experiences that they were having. And as we did that, we formulated what would work really well for Crumble. And I think any brand can learn kind of from that, which is you know, listen to your customers and see what they're telling you and try to figure out and create experiences that are great for you. Because even though this worked for us, there might be something else that works for you and your brand. But I think we really spend time listening to the customer and we start doing these weekly drops and we're like, well, if we're doing the weekly drops, we really got to start announcing and making it even more exciting. And so we started getting into videos. And then all of a sudden, as we started getting into videos and started doing these announcements, we're like, okay, we're going to just announce the same time every single week. Well, we started announcing at the same time every single week. And all of a sudden our social media just started getting flooded. Like people mm-hmm. sort of like set alarm clocks to it. And that's when the cult, you know, we started having this cult following because people started just seeing all this, all these weekly uh, different drops. Well, it got so bad that, that Instagram and Facebook, uh, mostly Instagram started thinking our account was spam. And, and because we would start replying to people and trying to communicate with them. And all of a sudden a, a video would drop and so many people would comment and like right away that it would get flagged in their systems of, Hey, this is con. This is a spammy account. There could be some issues with this account. So we really had to work with them, figure that out, help them understand. No, this is our concept, and we just have are having a ton that just flow in. So that kind of created that kind of weekly drop, that re- weekly kind of moment where everyone can kind of share. And I think one of the reasons why it also became successful is um, years ago, we Netflix and all these other businesses have come out where people would binge. So like television and all these shows and everything that you can kind of work together as a country or or a community 
You used to be able to talk about shows. You used to be able to talk about these things, but those are all kind of gone now. They're all just spoilers. Um, no one gets around other than live sports. No one gets around and really enjoys the same thing. So as we've kind of gone across the country and we have over 500 locations now, it's really fun to drop a flavor and everyone in the country. So if, if your sister is on one part of the country and you're on another part of the country, you can both go and enjoy the same thing and talk about it and experience it together. So it's been really this great thing that really brings these friends and brings family closer together, even if they're farther away or if they are close together, they can talk about it at work or at home. And it's really been this great experience that really brings people together. Yeah, well, I love that. Um, you know, it sounds like, yeah, you guys really identified a challenge and then adapted. And now those, those weekly drops, they really do touch on these trends around, as you said, engaging the consumer in this kind of almost like exclusive experience, like FOMO, right? Because you don't know if um, that flavor will ever return and you want to be a part of it. You want to be, you know, part of the conversation and share in on that. So I think that's really smart. And then how, how else do you engage your customers? So do they have any input in any of the flavors that will be coming out? Do they like vote on anything or? We do have surveys every once in a while, but we also are constantly checking social media. Like I'll go on Reddit and just say, hey, what's going on in Reddit? What are people talking about? What cookies do they wish they had? What are they, what are they not liking about the current cookies? Or what are they liking about the current cookies? Um, same thing. And so my partner, Sawyer, he'll, do, he'll be on that too as well. So he's, he, his team, uh, he and the R&D team are over all the development of the cookies. And so they're constantly checking social media, looking at all the details, crafting experiences, whether it's kind of themed weeks and those kinds of things around really that community. So a lot of times, you know, most businesses, they just will kind of be like, okay, that's great. That's social. Let's have someone off to the side, but we're in the heart of it and the thick of it. And we actually take a lot of feedback from our, from our customers on what we can do to improve. I think that's, again, our, our different kind of mindset is you have other concepts that are like, we're the professionals, we're the chefs. We know better than customers. We know better than you. Here's our perfectly crafted thing. Let me hand it over to you and hopefully you enjoy it. Where our approach is, here's our thing. What would you improve? Okay, mm -hmm. let's do it. Let's change that. Let's, so it's like, a, it's like, it's, it's food and it's product that's built by this community over time to really make every single product better. And we'll take a cookie. And if a cookie has been okay, but has not lived up to our standards, we'll totally reimagine it with all the feedback from our customers and, and relaunch a reimagined version of that cookie and take it to the next level. And so we're constantly improving, optimizing our cookies and our experiences and our processes to really match the level of feedback that we're getting from our customers. That's fantastic. Um, I think that's the first time I've ever heard someone say optimizing our cookies. So I have not digital anyway. Yes, physical. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, really cool stuff. How you guys are just really getting the customer involved and having them be a part of uh, you know the brand um, from helping mm -hmm. you know come up with cookies ideas and then serving as marketing, um, word of mouth. Um, you know, you guys, as you mentioned, you guys are huge on TikTok. That's how I discovered you guys. And everyone on my team was so excited when they found out you guys were coming on the show because you guys really are, um, have become a, a nationwide phenomenon. So I think that's pretty incredible too. And you guys have seen some impressive growth. Um, so I wanted to 
kind of pick your brain a little bit. So you said 500 locations, mm-hmm. which is incredible. So, you know, how, how have you guys been able to scale so quickly and still kind of maintain the quality and kind of cohesive brand identity among so many locations so quickly? That's a great question. So I think, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're over 500 stores in under five years and we almost have 50 states and we almost have 50 states. So we're even in Alaska and Hawaii right now. So we're really close to hitting, you know, 500 stores in 50 states in five years. And so it is, it's really, really rapid growth. And a lot of people ask like, Hey, how are you able to keep up? Like you said, with operationally quality wise, and how do you get that many people and how do you grow that many stores that quickly? And the, the, from the operational standpoint is we spend a lot of time and energy building tools and technology that really help us leverage understanding quality. Like for Mm -hmm. example, whenever someone places an order, whether it's to curbside or delivery or pickup or in store, um, they will come in, they will purchase their cookies and then we will send them a survey afterwards. But in that survey, they also have the ability to upload a photo and we get hundreds of thousands of photos um, a week. I think we might even be close to millions of photos a week of the cookies that they purchase. And so what we do is we have a team that comes here and looks at every single one of those cookies and they rank those cookies and rate those cookies. And so all the stores across the whole nation have a ranking of how well their cookies compare to other people in the state and across the country. When we look at the, um, the, the data on the cookies and each store can see the cookies across the different states, they can see like, hey, how well are, are, is our sizing just correct? Is our dressing look like it's advertised? So all these different nuances in the cookies that we look for to make the world's best cookies, that data is uh, shared in a mobile app that every one of the franchise partners the crew members and the managers at the stores can actually go and see how they compare, look at each other's photos and see where they're doing and how well quality is doing across the country. And then we have individual teams and troubleshooters that can say, okay, now that we know that data and we're not just like, hey, how do we solve 500 stores at the same time? We can say, okay, look at that. There's an issue here in Arizona in these two stores. Let somebody get somebody to go out there to do a quality refresh or let's go and have a conversation over the phone to see if we can work with them. Is it a training issue? Is it a temperature issue in that, in that um, climate area? So we kind of, we know all these nuances, but technology has really leveraged us in building these tools so that we can, as we scale rapidly, we can still see quality wise how we're doing as a company. And we're doing really, really well. So the other th- hard part too, is you just scale from 10 stores to 500 stores Sometimes it looks like, oh, there's more and more pictures of bad quality coming in, but because we can look from our data standpoint and say, okay, hey, where are we at quality-wise per store as we continue to grow? Because if you have three bad cookies in a week, the times I buy 500 stores and you see 1,500 cookies online, you're like, wait, is the world falling apart? Is quality falling apart? And a lot of times some communities may see that and say, oh, wait, is the quality failing here? But from our metrics and our internal standpoint, we're able to manage and see per store and as we scale out how well quality is doing and as we make certain changes to, to processes to um, specific rules those kinds of things we can see how that affects quality nationwide mm-hmm. you know you guys are really leveraging technology that's technology again um, to really keep up with with all those as you said little nuances 
whether that be within different regions or, you know, down, down to the store level. So it sounds like you guys kind of have a, uh, a wide view of everything that's um, going on at any given time. As far as the operations is concerned too as well. So we've got the quality and all these different benchmarks that we look at individual stores on. But I think what's also made us really successful to grow is that we really focus on unit economics. And what that means is we look at a store's individual, how, how well is the store doing? Are the owners you know, successful financially because they're running these stores? So we look at quality, but we also look at the unit economics because if the model and a store works really, really well, those owners want to open multiple stores. So almost every single one of our franchise partners doesn't just own one store, they own three stores or six stores or multiple stores. And so they continue to want to have more stores and more locations because they're having success with their first location. So we've never advertised ever our franchise concept mm-hmm. to anyone. And so it's all been internally driven, people coming to the stores and doing that sort of thing. So, and we've never had a store fail. Uh, so, you know, oh, a lot wow. of these concepts that are closing hundred stores this year, 30 stores this year, we went bad markets this year. So we've never had a store location fail ever. So we've been open for five years all stores that we've ever opened have been running and are opening and are doing well. So I think that that creates that drive for people to want to continue to open more locations as we continue to make sure the model and the financial works for the, for the owners too, as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 500 stores and not one has failed. That is uh, pretty impressive. And kind of wrapping up, I did just want to know, you know, 500 is a lot, um, but you know, what else, what are you growing toward? What are your goals and, and how do you kind of envision the future of Grumble? Well, thanks. I, I think there, there's two, two futures that we kind of see with Grumble. Um, the first is really to become a nationwide brand. And I feel like we're really, we've, we've done that. We've, we've gone across the nation and I don't think we, we don't sit down there and say, okay, we've got to hit this many much benchmarks or we need to have this growth be X now or this much year over year. We have no investors. And so we have no one to sit there and be like, hey, you have to have it certain ways or you have to meet certain metrics. We just really look at growing quality stores throughout the nation as fast as our model allows. Mm-hmm. And so we just let the natural tone of things and the natural people wanting more stores and all that stuff just naturally funnel the growth of where it goes from the growth. So that's kind of where we see us kind of continue to be a dominant player, to be one of the most loved brands in all of the United States. And the second part really we're dabbling in is we really want to go international. Uh, We really feel like um, there's lots of opportunities. And so we've sold several international locations. So we're really, really excited to continue to expand uh, around the globe. And so the United States is our first place that we're working on, but that will not be our last. And we're planning on really going international. That's excellent. I'm excited to see it. And Jason, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story about the Crumble brand with us. And I really appreciate your time. All right. Hey, thanks so much, Gabriella. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.